if you'll open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Our text this evening will be from verses 16 through 23, in which the the Lord is giving the disciples instructions about the first missionary journey that they would take. And this entire chapter is his instructions for them concerning the gospel ministry. Their names are listed in the first four verses of this chapter, and this is where Jesus gave them power to do many of the same types of miracles that he did. Jesus had compassion upon the people, and he demonstrated compassion by telling his disciples that he wanted them to do the same things that he did, and so they were able to heal from different types of diseases. But more important than that was the power that Jesus gave them in preaching. The power of the gospel message that they, was give, they were given is the most important thing. And they were preaching to people about the coming judgment of God. And certainly we would have to say that Jesus is far more concerned about the soul's condition, about where you're going to spend eternity, than he is about your physical condition. And we're certainly concerned about the physical condition of people. It's why we have a prayer page on Wednesday night where we bring those issues before the Lord in prayer. But we're most concerned about people's souls. Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's the commission that Jesus gave the apostles. They were sent out with the gospel, and they were to seek the lost and show them that Jesus is the way to salvation. Now, as we know by reading Scripture and understanding Scripture, that the condition of all people without Christ is that they are lost. And each one of you who knows the Savior now, you were at one time lost. And as the Bible describes it, we were without hope of God in the world. But then we hear the gospel message. That, that's brought to us, and then we believe in the Savior. And then we're saved, we're found, we are delivered from our sins. Well, as we come to the 16th verse, Jesus is going to explain the hostility that the disciples, these apostles, would experience as they went out with this gospel message. And I believe I might have said something a little bit about this last week, how strange it is that these men were bringing the only hope for these people, bringing them hope of eternal life, and yet there was going to be hostility against them for their preaching. And if you'll look in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 16, uh, verse number 16, Jesus says, "'Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves.'" Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee you into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. One of the most remarkable aspects of the Bible is its timelessness. 
we're 2,000 years removed from what Jesus said in these scriptures as he spoke to these men. And yet what he said here rings as true to us today as it did when he called them out and gave them the commission to preach the gospel. The world has not changed. Now, our civilization has changed. Our technology has changed. I mean, civilization has changed technology-wise. We communicate the gospel uh, more easily today. We have more opportunities than we've ever had before. In all the history of the world, we've not had all the available avenues that we have to get the gospel out. Uh, We can send out uh, missionaries uh, across the world on on an airplane in just a few hours. They can be in another part of the world. Uh, We can reach people in a short amount of time through radio, through television, the internet, all of these different things that uh, we have now. We can put the Bible in the hands of people in their own languages, which is something that never has been able to be done in, in, in the history of Christianity like it's done today. But what has not changed in all of this time since Jesus was here is the reception of the gospel. The human heart is exactly the same as it was in the time of Jesus. People are resistant to the message. And we're blessed today that we live in a country where we don't have to worry about being physically assaulted for our preaching. We're blessed to live in a place where we have religious freedom But if we were in other parts of the world, there is still persecution going on for the preaching of the gospel. I mean, you can ask some of our missionaries that they have some difficulty in places where they are preaching the gospel because of opposition against it. And we could have that if God had not blessed us in the country that we're living in. But I want to tell you something about preaching the gospel and witnessing for Jesus Christ that God has promised us that his protection will be upon us. And that's where I want to start today, the protection for the preachers of the gospel. And I want to assure you that whether you are a preacher or not, whether you've been called in the ministry in the same way that a preacher is called in the ministry, you still have the promise of God that if you are a witness and you've taken that responsibility upon you to give the gospel of Christ, then you can expect God's protection. Now, you might ask me, well, how is that? How is that? Because we know that there are many people that are killed for preaching the gospel of Christ. History is replete with the numbers of martyrs that have given up their lives for preaching the gospel. And didn't nearly every one of these apostles go to their deaths because of their faith? Well, most of you know that history. Uh, On our table out front, I don't know if there's a copy of this there now, but we do have them uh, in our office. There's a little booklet that's called The Trail of Blood. And it receives its title from the martyrs, from the history of the terrible persecution that's been endured by Baptist people for preaching the gospel. See, one thing that the Scripture has never promised to those of us that become Christians, it's never promised that this life would be without suffering. Just because you become a Christian does not mean that it's an end to all of the troubles that you have in your life. Uh, becoming a Christian does not mean that you're never going to get sick and you're never going to have problems. You're not going to have financial problems and all of those things. The Bible does not promise that for people that come to Christ. On the other hand, the Bible does promise that we will suffer for the name of Christ. And all you have to do is read the scripture that we just read here in Matthew chapter 10. This is what the scripture says. But more particularly, the Apostle Paul addressed that very issue when he talked about the faith that we're given to believe in Christ and also what happens that accompanies that faith. 
He says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. So not only does God give us faith, and there's not a person here that's ever believed the gospel, not one of you ever believed because of faith that you conjured up within your own self. That faith comes from God. God gives you even the faith to believe in him. But the scripture also says that accompanying that faith will come suffering. We have been appointed to suffering. And the scriptures also teach that suffering for Christ is a badge of honor. When Paul wrote this epistle to the Philippians, he was in prison. And he wasn't doing anything here more than echoing the words of Christ when he said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And that's not exactly the best sales pitch that you could give for ministry. I mean, if you're recruiting to get someone into the ministry, you you wouldn't start off with a statement like this. And you wonder, why does Jesus do this? He begins by saying, Behold. And whenever you see that word behold in the New Testament, and Matthew uses that word a lot as he describes what goes on, he says behold, and and there's always an astounding statement that comes after that. Something unusual, something that you don't expect comes after that statement. He says behold because that is an attention grabber. And so when Jesus looked over the 12 apostles, he had commissioned them. He explained to them about the compassion that they were to have for for people. He let them know that there was nothing or little to nothing in the way of compensation for what they do. And then he said, Behold, I'm sending you out to be torn to shreds by men who hate the gospel. I'm sending you out like poor, defenseless sheep to be attacked by bloodthirsty wolves. And when Luke records it, it sounds even more ominous because there Luke says in Luke 10 verse 3, Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Not full-grown sheep, as if that would make any difference, but lambs, innocent little lambs. And that just further accentuates the helplessness of this. This is not an advertisement that you put in the paper for ministers. I mean, I could see this now. Berean Baptist Church is looking for a minister, and we want you to come and and minister to us, and we're going to promise you about your benefits of this job. You're going to be hated. You'll be despised in the community if you teach the truth of God's Word. People are going to hate you. And not only that, but the church members are going to complain about you all the time, and they'll have you for dinner every Sunday. You don't want to put that kind of ad in the paper if you want to get ministers. Well, what is the picture here that Jesus is trying to get across? Well, I think that we have to look at what he says here because this is most definitely showing us that there is an element of helplessness in the ministry. There is a helplessness for the person who goes out with the gospel of Christ. Now, here's what we need to see by this to begin with, that we are defenseless without the shepherd. We are defenseless. Now, let's think a moment about this graphic illustration that Jesus gives Why does Jesus talk about sheep and wolves? Jesus was a master illustrator, and there isn't a a better illustration that he could have used that would be more familiar to these men. Now, they were fishermen, but they were, most of them were, but they were certainly familiar with shepherding. The occupation of the nation was herding sheep when it first began. The 12 sons of Jacob were shepherds. The most famous king, the greatest king of Israel, was David, and he was a shepherd. 
And some of the most beautiful psalms that are written by David were drawn from that experience of being a shepherd. And so the disciples are familiar with sheep. They, they knew what it meant to protect sheep from predators that would sneak in during the night and they would attack the sheep. And so when you read the psalms you, and when you read the story of David, you find there that David protected his sheep. And David told stories about, about lions and bears. The, the scripture describes that vicious predators that would come after the sheep. But the predator that was most common... And the one that was most adept at working in stealth mode and the hardest one to protect the sheep from was the wolf. There are stories of wolves that have been told by shepherds that the wolf would sneak in at night and he would move in and out so quickly that even though you knew he was out there and even though you had seen the result of him being there, yet you never saw the wolf. That's how stealthily they could move. I remember when my uh, grandfather lived in Arkansas, that he he didn't keep sheep, but he did have some cows. And right next to the farm, or on his farm, there was a a large stand of of, of the forested area, a timber there, and there were timber wolves that lived in in that forest. And at night, you could hear the wolves howling. And I remember that one night, the wolves came out, and they attacked my grandfather's cows. That prospect of being among ravening wolves is not appealing especially if you're a sheep. But that's what Jesus compared the disciples to. He said, you are going to be sheep among wolves. And then the apostles also knew the nature of the sheep. Uh, sheep are the most defenseless of animals. Uh, I, I can't ever recall reading a, an article in the paper where anybody was ever attacked by a sheep. There aren't any stories of vicious, marauding, raging sheep that go out and rip and tear other animals to pieces. If you take your kids to the fair, you don't say, now, you you can go out there and pet everything else, but stay away from the sheep because they're liable to attack you. Sheep don't do that. Sheep don't have claws. They're not likely to bite you. They're not fighters. In fact, sheep are very skittish whenever they sense danger and they take off. But the only problem with the sheep is he's not fast enough to outrun a wolf. He can't defend himself against a wolf. So in effect... Sheep are helpless. And if a sheep is going to survive, he has to have a shepherd. He's defenseless without a shepherd. So when Jesus said this to the apostles, this was the picture that they had in their minds. You're sending us out as sheep? Well, we're going to be eaten alive. You're sending us out? How? As sheep? Sheep among wolves? That's hopeless. We're defenseless. And this is the idea that Jesus wanted them to have And he was trying to tell them this, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, but you are not going to be defenseless. There is going to be someone to help you. They would have a shepherd, and he is the shepherd. He said, behold, I send you forth. And in that word, I, is the protection of the shepherd. We're defenseless without the shepherd. But we also know this, that we are defended by the Savior. The Savior is our shepherd, and he defends us. The Savior is the shepherd. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, in one sense, this is a training mission in which Jesus says, I'm sending you out alone for the first time. I'm sending you out alone. And in another sense, he's telling them, I'm never going to send you out alone. I'm always going to be with you. Now, we're familiar with those great passages of Scripture in the book of John about Jesus being the good shepherd. I'd like you to turn, if you would please, to the Gospel of John chapter 10 for a moment. 
And this is a, just simply a, a great chapter about the love and protection of Christ for his people. The first 18 verses of chapter 10 are a marvelous promise about Christ giving his life for the sheep. It tells us he's the good shepherd. This is what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd does everything he has to do in order to protect the sheep. Now we begin reading in verse number 7 of John chapter 10. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, if you're wondering about that statement that I made earlier about martyrs and about how God protects his people. We wonder, if you're wondering about that, we we see here that Jesus is the one who gave his life for us in order that we might have eternal life. And this is what happens when you become a Christian, that you realize that this life that we're living right now is not the end. This is just the beginning. When you, when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is actually the beginning of your eternal life. You don't have to wait till you die to get eternal life. Your life is safe in the hands of Jesus right then. And we understand that when we get saved, we're not really concerned about the physical life that we're living because we realize that we're just passing through the physical life and we're on our way to go home to be with Christ. So a real Christian is not worried about staying here. The reason that we are here is for evangelism. There's no other reason why God would leave us in the world except it is to preach the gospel to those who don't know about Christ. And when we're through with that job, when Christ is through with us doing that, then he just moves us out of this life and he moves us into glory. Now, there's another passage that I want you to see in John. Now, if you'll just turn over to the 14th chapter, and we'll look at this one briefly. This is part of the last instructions to the disciples before Jesus was crucified. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, we're getting the first instructions for that first missionary journey. And here in in John 14, these are the last instructions before Jesus left them forever. But was he really leaving them forever? Well, let's read what the Scripture says, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And so there we see that Jesus sends them out, but he says, you are never going to be without me. The shepherd will always be there to defend the sheep. And so the fact that Jesus sends us out as sheep among the wolves does not mean that the wolves are going to devour us. It tells us that you can look at that wolf with his sharp teeth, look him in the eye, and not be afraid. 
William Hendrickson said, besides the fact that he himself is sending them means that he is very deeply involved in their ministry, for the phrase, I am sending you, means I myself am commissioning, commissioning you to be my apostles. That is, your representatives, so that I will be working through you. This certainly implies protection. Come what may, they are under his loving care. If it were not for this, they would be helpless. For what can sheep do when they're in the midst of wolves? So Jesus is not saying to them, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Let's see how you fare. Let's see how well you do out there. Let's see how long you're going to last. If Jesus meant that, and if that's how the disciples understood it, then they never would have gone. That's a suicide mission. You don't want to go out there without the protection of Christ. The Bible says that we are ambassadors for Christ, not kamikazes for Christ. So he's going to protect us. Now, thirdly, we, we have to be determined about salvation. Now, do you know there, there are many Christians that never have this sense. They never have a sense that they're sheep among wolves. I mean, when is the last time that you heard a gospel presentation and it began with this? If you trust Christ, I promise you that you'll be the most despised person at work. If you trust Christ and you live it, then your family is going to disown you. If you become a witness for Christ, people out there will be ready to devour you. You'll be the least popular person on your block and the last person invited to a party. You don't hear those kinds of gospel presentations. I mean, churches are looking for people to join up, not for them to run away from them. So they're not going to tell people those kinds of things. And so what we tempt to do when we give the gospel message is that we want to water down the requirements for Christianity. Now, we've just read what Jesus says about it. And if you want to read a little bit further, Jesus really tells us there in the next set of verses about what the commitment to Christ is really like. But we rarely tell anybody up front what that commitment is going to be. And so we don't talk about, while I say we, that's a generic word because... I don't think that we do it this way here. But churches do not tell people about repentance from sin. You need to repent of your sins. God requires that. Oh, they don't tell you that because, well, you really haven't done anything wrong. And they don't preach about the depravity of man because the teaching today is, you know, we're all pretty good people down inside. What really has to happen, we just have to... Just have to it's just fan that little spark of God that we have. And it's a little spark of divinity that's in man. And if you fan that up, then you'll be able to be all right. You'll follow God. They don't preach about holy and righteous living anymore because today's Christians are in the thick of the world's culture. The churches today are actively trying to make the church like the environment that people are used to living in. And so people go to church and they go for the bands. And they go for the shake and the rattle and the roll. And you can go to churches, and sadly enough, it even happens sometimes in this church, we certainly don't condone it, that people are sitting in church with a smartphone and posting on Facebook or checking sports scores while the service is going on. People like that are not going to feel like sheep among wolves. They won't feel that way. Now, if you're dependent upon the shepherd to protect you, then there has to be some kind of problem that's going on, something that makes you feel like you need the protection. But people don't feel that way. They're not dependent upon the shepherd to protect them from the wolf because they don't even show that they're a sheep. When a wolf sees them, he's thinking, there's another wolf. Got the scent of a wolf, another wolf. 
Now, the Scripture talks about sheep and wolves' clothing, but you don't find it talking anything about wolves and, or wolves and sheep's clothing, but you don't find it talking about sheep and wolves' clothing. I mean, who ever heard of that? A sheep parading around like a wolf. A sheep dressed like a wolf? Well, that doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't happen. Now, you get my point here that, that people don't feel like sheep because they aren't sheep. They don't feel like they're living among wolves because they aren't sheep. A sheep is a decided disciple, a determined disciple of Jesus Christ. And he's living in the middle of a hostile world. And whenever he puts himself down firmly and he lives like Christ, as soon as he does that, as soon as he plants his feet both firmly on God's side, I can promise you the wolves are not going to mistake you for another wolf. The wolf smells dinner when you act like God. Now, when churches water down the gospel and make it more attractive in order to gain members, you know what happens? They fill the church up with wolves that really never understood what the gospel was anyway. They aren't real converts. As I said, read the rest of the chapter, and there it'll tell you what real Christianity is all about. And so if you are in a church that is not the environment that's described in the rest of this chapter as you go on, then you are in the sheepfold. What you've done, you've wandered into a den of wolves. And if you're a real sheep, the best thing to do is get out of there. Jesus said, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he didn't say, I'm sending you out to live like wolves. I'm sending out you out to act like wolves. And you need to act like wolves so you can win wolves. That's not the plan. It's not the plan that God gives in his word. The wolves are Christ rejectors. The wolves are hostile to the sheep and they're hostile to the gospel. And then these verses tell you, the next ones here tell you what hostile people do. Now, this is true that everybody without Christ is hostile to the gospel. Maybe they don't want to say it in so many words, but people are hostile to the gospel. What God does, though, he breaks down the resistance of some. He breaks down that resistance, and then God draws those people to himself. Those aren't the ones that this is talking about here. These are people that remain hostile to the gospel. And this, these are the ones that qualify for verse number 14. If you're back there, Matthew 10, verse 14, we talked about it last week. And whosoever shall not receive you or hear your words when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. If you are determined with the good news of salvation, folks, the wolves will come out. And Jesus wanted the disciples to know that up front. The wolves will be out there, but they also have a shepherd that's there with them. Well, tonight we're not going, get, not going to get further than this 16th verse. So let's look at the second part of the verse. And this part of the verse speaks of the disposition of witnesses for the gospel. The disposition of witnesses for the gospel. He says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now you can see by the illustrations that Jesus uses when he speaks, it's like a visit to the zoo. There are sheep and there are wolves, there are serpents and there's doves. The Bible talks about ministers are like an ox that grinds at the mill. The Bible says that they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. David said, as a deer pants after the water brook, so my soul panteth after thee. Solomon said, go to the ant, thou sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. The Bible's telling us that there's a lot that you can learn by looking at the activity of animals. But a serpent does not seem to be the type of animal that Jesus is going to compare his people to. That doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, most of us don't like snakes. 
Maybe some of you do. I don't like them. I try to stay away from snakes. But there are some serpent-like qualities that we have to have in order to survive in a hostile world as God's people. Jesus said, be wise as serpents. And there he's referring to the shrewdness of a serpent. Be shrewd like a serpent. See, what a serpent does, what a snake does, he doesn't intentionally put himself in harm's way. You're not even likely to see a snake unless you invade his territory. If you go looking for a snake, you might find one. And Jesus is telling us here to avoid danger like a snake. Keep your eyes open. Don't go looking for trouble. Now, if the world is hostile to you already, what you don't want to do is throw gasoline on that fire. Now, you have to speak the truth. You have to stand up for Christ. But the Bible is simply telling us here, Jesus is simply saying, be wise in your approach. Watch how you approach people with the gospel. Now, it's true. People that are without Christ are dying and they go to hell. And you're working around people all the time in your workplace that don't know Christ. When you hear someone curse, you shouldn't start out your evangelism approach. Hey, man, you better cut that out. You're going to hell. I mean, that's probably not a good way for you to start out. You're going to hell. By the way, have you heard about Jesus? That's not the right way to start. Now, you meet some Christians and they say, I stand up for Christ and and I got fired for standing up for Jesus. You did? What did you do? Well, I spent a half hour at my co-worker's desk telling him how important it was to trust Christ. You didn't get fired for standing up for Jesus. You got fired for stealing time from your employer. Be wise as serpents, Jesus says. Learn when to talk. Learn when to shut up. Learn to write approaches. Speak the truth. But avoid volatile situations and arguments that never do any good. And this is something that Christians often get involved with. You know, there, there are hard-headed people in the world. And, and sometimes you can talk to people and you can start arguing Scripture with them and you're arguing with a lost person that's never going to understand the Scriptures anyway. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that no one understands the things of God unless the Spirit of God is in him. You, you just don't understand the things of God unless God reveals those to you. But Christians can get into these arguments, fruitless arguments, and you get in arguments about the Bible, and, and you get angry about that. And when you get angry with someone, you've lost the opportunity. It's not likely you're going to get to speak to that person again. And even the very best of Christians make that mistake sometimes. Let's go over to Acts chapter 23 for just a minute. Acts 23. The Apostle Paul said in... One part of a scripture, Seek, see then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And I think that the Apostle Paul might have said that, probably for many reasons, but it's the truth and what we ought to do. But he must have said it also because he made the mistake of not walking circumspectly. And here in Acts chapter 23, we find it when he was accused by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, all of you know Paul's story. He was a persecutor of Christians at one time. Uh, he was the Sanhedrin's top detective for finding Christians and putting them to death. But then he became a Christian. And when he was saved, he became public enemy number one for the Jewish council. They hated Christians, but they especially hated the Apostle Paul. And that's because he used to be one of them. He used to be one of their best and their brightest. In fact, Paul was educated by one of their best rabbis, Gamaliel. 
And so Paul was a very wise man, and he knew enough to be able to use that wisdom against the Jews when he needed to because he understood Scripture. But here in the 23rd verse, he's brought into, or 23rd chapter, he's brought into the courtroom of the Jewish council, and they begin to accuse him. And in verse number 1, it says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then Paul said, I wist not, or I did know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now, folks, there you see Paul made a mistake. He didn't recognize the high priest. Now, for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us why he didn't recognize him. And there's lots of different ideas about why that might have been. One of them is that the high priest might not have been wearing the robes that he would normally wear, the high priestly garments. And certainly Paul would have recognized him then. But he didn't recognize that this was the high priest. And so when Ananias, the priest, ordered him to be struck on the mouth, Paul lost his cool. Paul was angry, and you probably would too. And Paul spat it off to him. Well, it's, it's, it's against Scripture. It's against Scripture to disrespect a ruler, even if that's a, an evil ruler. So what Paul did was he correct himself and corrected himself, and he offered an apology. But then follows an example of his shrewdness in verse number 6. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. That was a very shrewd thing that Paul did. Now read on and you see why. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry. And the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Folks, there's a stroke of genius right there. Paul is a genius as he argues this way. Here his enemies come. They're on a unified front. They are determined that Paul is going to be beaten and even killed. Ah, but Paul exploited the differences between the, the, the two factions that were on that Jewish council. The one part is the Pharisees. The other part is the Sadducees. And the Pharisees affirm there is a resurrection. There are angels. There are all of these things. And the Sadducees deny that. And Paul knew it. And so he set those two against one another. And by the time that they were finished, they even went so far as to say, let us not fight against God. Here's the guy they wanted to kill for preaching the gospel. And now he's on God's side and they're saying, let's don't fight against God. And you see what Paul did? He made a mistake. He, he made a mistake of, of speaking against the high priest. And before he was through with them, the high priest is the one who has to be reprimanded for striking a messenger of God. That's shrewd. That's being wise as a serpent. Or if you want to put another animal in that place, that's making a silk purse out of a sow's ear. That's what Paul did. Well, Jesus says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So there's another part of this. He says that we are to be undefiled like a dove. 
Let me read to you a verse from the Song of Solomon. This is a Song of Solomon's a beautiful love story about a husband and a wife, and it's emblematic of Christ's love for his church. And in this scripture, the wife begins to speak, and she quotes the words of her husband. She says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. Undefiled. That's what her husband says. And you know that's what Christ intends for his church? He wants us to be an undefiled bride. Well, the Bible teaches that the church is the bride of Christ, and he wants to have a glorious church, one without spot and wrinkle. Ephesians 5.27 says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now there, the Scriptures is telling us that a Christian person is to live righteously before God. You are to look at the way that you live your life. He wants an undefiled church. And he says, harmless as a dove. And there he's thinking about innocence. He's thinking about the purity of the dove. The dove is a symbol of purity. So if the world is going to hate you, don't give them a legitimate reason for it. Don't let them hate you because you've done something wrong. Let them hate the cause of Christ, not you, not because there's something evil in your character, not because you've personally given someone cause. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 20. For what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So he's telling us, if you treat someone badly... There's no praise for your patient endurance. If you've given that person cause to hate you, you deserve it. You deserve whatever you get. You're not a paragon of virtue because you sit quietly by when someone rails on you for something that you've done wrong. But if you sit there and you take it when you've done nothing wrong, then you've done what Christ requires. And if you follow up what Peter goes on to say in verse number 20, you'll find there that he says, this is the example of Christ. He was reviled and he was beaten, but it wasn't because of his faults, because he didn't have any. And you see, this is what it comes down to. These men are sent out as witnesses. They are to represent Christ. And what did Christ do? He loved his enemies. He gave his life for his enemies. Matthew 5, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And so if we are going to represent him, then we have to be sure that we do not drag his name through the mud with the ugliness of our character, the ugliness of the way that we treat others. So when you are a witness for Christ, you have to be determined you are going to tell it like it is. You're going to speak the truth, and you're never going to back down. You're to give the whole story of the gospel of Christ. Repentance from sin and all of that that goes with it. The gospel demands faith in Jesus Christ. And when you speak that message to people, you can, either, you can do it in one of two ways. You can have love in your heart for their souls because you know that if they don't receive this message, they'll die and go to hell. Or you can have contempt in your heart and you can say, if they reject the message, let them go to hell. You can have one or two attitudes about that. When you speak the message, you need to have love in your heart for souls. You have to think about it. How would Christ do it? How would Christ approach this person who doesn't know about, about him, about salvation and him? 
And so you have to ask yourself some questions when you're dealing with people. Is my attitude for the good of others? Is my attitude a good testimony for me? And most importantly, does it glorify God? Is the way that I act, what I do, how I treat others, how I present myself as a testimony for others, do I glorify God? You know, if you could just think about that all of the time, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, whether it's here, at work, wherever you are, is my activity glorifying God? And if you can say that it is and you know that it is, then praise God for that. You're right where God wants you to be. But I suspect that most of us know exactly when our activities are not glorifying God. And the Bible says, Jesus says, I want you to be harmless as doves. I want you to have that purity of the dove. That's a symbol of purity. Now, I've got one more question for you to sum up the message tonight, and we'll do that very quickly. And that is, will you go? Jesus commissioned the disciples, and the question for us, will we go like they went? Everything that I've said tonight is not going to make much difference at all. In fact, it makes no difference if you're never a witness. If you you never attempt to tell anybody about Christ, what I say makes no difference at all. None of this, this message is fruitless if you're not going to do what God has called you to do. Ravening wolves are not going to bother you if they never know that you're a sheep. Jesus said, Behold, I send you forth. And there was never a question in the minds of these men whether or not they would actually go. They were going. And Jesus was just telling them what to expect. So we need to go. And we know that when we do go, that we are going to enjoy the protection of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to speak to your people tonight. And how important it is that we present a good testimony for you, that we live our lives in holiness and righteousness, that we never bring a reproach upon your name. And we know this, Lord, that when we take the message out, that there will be people who will reject it. It just happens, and there are people that hate the gospel, and they don't want to hear what we have to say. But we know that we have your protection. We know that you've saved us, and you're watching over us as a shepherd watches over his sheep. Help us not to be afraid of the wolf, not to be afraid to give the message of Christ. Speak to people tonight, Lord. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.